Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. Sanctum Unmasked is about a sex club and describes various sex acts. Please use discretion where and when you listen. It's 10 a.m. on a sunny L.A. Saturday. A bubbly blonde wakes up in her Los Feliz apartment to her dog Scout impatiently licking her face. She gets up, makes coffee, and scrolls Instagram and the New York Times interchangeably. She takes Scout for a hike in Griffith Park, the trail up to the Hollywood sign, of course, then meets a friend for lunch. She orders the little gem salad instead of the egg and cheese bagel she actually wants, noting that she's working later and doesn't want to look five months pregnant. A mistake she made last month. At home, she does 400 sit-ups in front of reruns of Gilmore Girls. And then she starts the grooming process. Shower. Intense conditioning mask to sit on her bleached hair while she shaves everything else. She calls her mom for a quick catch-up while aggressively tweezing stray hairs from her bikini line. Ouch! Rinse hair, apply fake tanner, moisturizer, hair serum. She throws on jeans, Converse, and her favorite ex-boyfriend hoodie and calls an Uber to the Sanctum Mansion. In the green room, with a handful of other Sanctum performers, she ditches the sweatshirt and sneakers and slips into a robe. A makeup artist begins caking on her foundation and feathery eyelashes. Tonight, she's performing in the live sex show. Now, she has to sit for like 90 minutes while a woman meticulously applies rhinestones to her boobs to create a makeshift Diamante bra. She takes a large shot of vodka, followed by an Altoid, and now she's ready. Each time a sanctum party rolls around, she and the other performers put in all this effort always aware that, as sex workers, their bodies are part of everyone's experience. 
Okay, so I made that scene up, but I'm probably not that far off. Since its inception in 2013, sex work was happening at Sanctum in various forms. Some were pretty straightforward. The monthly party became known for its elaborate live sex shows, so they would obviously hire performers to have sex with each other in front of the guests. But there were other, more gray areas of exchange of sex for money happening, too. I mean, he was running prostitution, but it was like indirect. It was an eye-wink prostitution, if nothing else. That's journalist Mike Sager again, the writer from Esquire who shadowed Damon. Now, reminder, we live in a puritanical society where the consensual exchange of sex for money is illegal. Meaning, at Sanctum, and basically everywhere else in this country, negotiating payment and boundaries in the arena of sex work is often vague and indirect, leaving a lot of room for misinterpretation. Throw in some entitled billionaires, very young women, copious amounts of alcohol, and probably some white powder too, and unsurprisingly, it can get messy pretty fast. Some of the high rollers, they were assured of being rolled. At some point, he was charging 145000 And, like, how are you going to not have troubles with the people that are spending that much money with you? What did these men, who paid exorbitant amounts of money to get into Sanctum, think they were buying? What were the rules? Were there rules? In this episode, we're going to explore the intersection of sex, money, and power at Sanctum through the lens of sex work. When I was back in my newspaper days, everything always had to be black and white. You know, I think there's like a lot of gray with this. People's pleasure, desire, needs, guilt, all those things come to a flashpoint with sex. Welcome to Sanctum Unmasked. I'm your host, Carly Shortino. By now you know Claudia, who worked as an atmosphere model at Sanctum for multiple years. In our conversation, part of what we talked about was, what exactly is a sex worker anyway? I have this discussion with so many people all the time, like, are we sex workers or are we not? I don't know. (laughs) I guess I haven't broken down the definition, I guess, of sex worker exactly, but I don't know if I necessarily consider that a sex worker, Um, at least as an atmosphere model. Maybe if I was doing the performances, maybe. But I think that's such like a gray area. I'm not saying it as far as like, oh, I don't want to be categorized into that. Because, you know, at this point when you do everything that I do in my day, like call me whatever you want to call me. I've been called worse. Because there are so many people that are so offended by the term sex worker. But to me, it's like, okay, if I am, I am. If I'm not, I'm not. See, even just defining the term is a nebulous task. And this conversation has grown even more broad and confusing with the explosion of OnlyFans. You know, the extraordinarily popular subscription site that's primarily used to create and sell erotic content. Considering that your pre-med neighbor and your great-aunt Judy are both killing it on OnlyFans, well, are they sex workers? Like me, for example, I don't do any triple X on my OnlyFans at all. So is me being naked on my OnlyFans, is that considered sex work? Or do I cross that line as soon as there's masturbation or partner involved? Some of the performers that Sanctum hired were already working in what would traditionally be considered the sex industry. Like some worked in porn or as erotic dancers. Take Jenna, for example. 
She was a performer at Sanctum for multiple years, but before that, she worked in the adult film industry, and her experience had not been so great. Being 18 years old, not even watching porn, and kind of like throwing myself into this whole BDSM, kink.com, like porn world, starting out there, I kind of lost my boundaries, and I sort of lost my concept of consent. I was going to parties where all of these porn stars were just in your face with their cameras, like trying to get content to post on their Snapchat subscriptions. So, I mean, I was, you know, in this sort of culture where the consent didn't matter because, oh, you're a porn star. The consent's already there. So this was the world that Jenna had become accustomed to, a world where people felt entitled to take without asking. But then she took a job at Sanctum as a performer in the live sex shows, and it instantly felt different. It wasn't really until I found Damon and Sanctum that I realized that there are so many different cultures within the adult world and the porn world and sex work. I felt like this energy around me at the events that I think is incomparable to any other type of sex work or Um, any other sexual interaction that I've ever had. Uh, Because you feel like this overwhelming sense of love, consent, respect, and that people are there for the art. People are there for the outfits. People are there for the performance. And there are not cameras or phones allowed. So that was the huge difference for me, feeling like I had a choice. Overall, Jenna recalls her experience at the club as extremely supportive. Because her boundaries were being respected, it became a safe space to explore her sexuality. It definitely gave me erotic freedom and a sense of individuality, less like a product and more like a person. It really gave me a sense of belonging at a time that I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Which is incredible. And she's certainly not the only performer we talked to who felt this way. Damon wasn't only recruiting from within the sex industry, by the way. There was another big way he found girls to work the club. Doing outreach on the popular Sugar Daddy website, Seeking Arrangement. In case you need a refresher, a Sugar Daddy website is a dating site that connects sugar daddies, a.k.a. rich guys, with sugar babies, who tend to be younger women— interested in dating rich guys. Convenient. Of course, there are sugar mamas on these sites too, and not all sugar babies are women. But I mean, the vast majority of users tend to fit this heterosexual cisgender mold. So the idea is that people meet on these sites and then go on to create a quote arrangement. And that word can mean a whole range of different things, from a genuinely romantic, long-term arrangement that functions essentially like a traditional relationship, but with an implied financial caretaking component, all the way to a solely transactional arrangement, aka paying for a hookup, and everything in between. Essentially, sugaring is a modern, increasingly visible form of sex work that's been dressed up and repackaged to be somewhat socially acceptable. And these sites are widely used by college students. Some even give free upgrades if you sign up with a .edu college email address. So anyway, Damon had a profile on Seeking Arrangement, and he'd message women about potentially coming to work at Sanctum in various atmosphere roles. It was actually a great place to find girls who are open to sexual performances and all of that. I was always incredibly straight up about everything. 
I'm hiring atmosphere performers, you know, 500 bucks for the night. They were dressed in wild costumes. Atmosphere girls were girls that were just, you know, that atmosphere. My old creative director, Lena, would create all these scenarios, you know, and there'd be like a girl who was a living table or a lamp or like, you know, some character or something. And they'd be, you know, in that character the whole night. And seeking arrangement was more than just a hiring tool, a slutty zip recruiter, if you will. It was also just a place to find young, hot women who might want to come to the party as guests for fun. And remember, women who made the invite list got in for free. Essentially, Damon was curating a very specific environment. He was filling the club with men who have a ton of money and women who are at least open to the idea of some sort of sexual exchange for compensation. Something for everyone. So he throws them together, adds some champagne, and says, okay, you guys figure it out. People wanted to be in this world. They were meeting celebrities. They were meeting, you know, very wealthy men. The atmosphere of what was going on there was pretty amazing. You know, a lot of these girls were sort of looking for arrangements and stuff like that anyway. So this gave them an opportunity to meet people and to create the kind of life they wanted for themselves. It makes sense. He's essentially just replicating the website, but in real life. I think venues like this are a great opportunity for money and fun. That's Elle Stanger. She's a sex educator who speaks about safety and consent, particularly in environments like these. She also works as a stripper in Portland. I wanted to get her take on this particular dynamic within the club. For the workers who are hustling, if they can name their own prices and negotiate, that's a great opportunity because you can also make regulars that will see you outside of that particular venue And I understand why they would want the workers to be happy and to populate the venue with a lot of them because they want to be able to charge, you know, thousands of dollars per head for these wealthy, mostly men that come in. I would be really interested to be a fly on the wall. Basically, if you're good at hustling, it can be a goldmine. And like she said, you can sometimes make connections inside the club that can turn into more long-term arrangements outside the club. One of the beneficiaries of Damon's particularly curated party environment was David Winkler. David's a movie producer in his 50s, who we met in a previous episode. The way David first heard about Sanctum was actually through seeking arrangement. Basically, after he got divorced, he was looking to have some casual fun. His sex life up until that point had been pretty conventional, and he needed a minute to thrive as his single slutty self, you know? And he discovered that seeking arrangement was a great way to date women without the expectation of commitment. If you're interested, he actually detailed his experiences of being a sugar daddy in a book he published in 2022, aptly titled The Arrangement. Seeking arrangement is Tinder for people with money. I started out out of my marriage just paying for a night, you know, whatever, $600 to $1,000, $1,500 for a date. We'd go to dinner, we'd travel together. And I felt like I was supporting their career goals and ambitions. I was never interested in it being monogamous, but I liked how honest it was. Like, nobody lied. Everybody knew what we were doing. In other words, the money, which is often called an allowance on sugar sites, you know, just to really lean into that whole perverse daddy-daughter thing, acts as a boundary. For David, the money kept things casual, and he liked that. Also, he felt the site was a place he could talk openly about his sexual turn-ons in a way that felt new and exciting to him. His first few Sanctum parties were a ton of fun. 
If you remember, he told us that Sanctum made him feel like he wasn't the only perv in town. So sweet. At the beginning, he always went to the club with a date. But eventually, he decided to go solo, literally single and ready to mingle. And that night turned out to be his best yet. The highlight for me was once I did go alone and I ended up hooking up with two women. I knew one of the girls well. We had spoken on Seeking Arrangement and had not met. And she said, you know, you want to have some fun? And I said, absolutely. And as we were going, she grabbed a friend and she said, you want her to join us? I thought she was beautiful. I said, absolutely. She said, you know, will you take care of us? And I knew exactly what she was saying. And I said, yes. You know, nobody ever comes out and says, you know, what are you going to pay me? It's much more subtle than that. Will you take care of us? In other words, if we all rail, you're going to Venmo us later, right? The sugar world is chock full of vague terminology like this in order to pretend you're not fucking for money, whether it's for legal reasons or to preserve someone's sense of morality or the guy's ego or whatever. As Joan Didion famously wrote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. I remember having sex with these two women and seeing maybe 20 people in the room. And when it was over, they applauded. I mean, you know, I write about that in my book, literally hearing applause. I remember after having this threesome, we walked upstairs and one of the girls said, you want to get a drink? And I said, you know, no, I think I'm going to go home. And she said, why? I said, well, it just doesn't get any better than this. You know, I, I was the king of sanctum for five minutes. Where am I going to go from here? I had pushed my sexual boundaries. From now on, I'll be offended if my partners don't applaud me every time we have sex. Maybe I can get Damon to facilitate this for me. After hearing about David's sugar threesome bonanza, I asked, did he feel like there was a lot of this, quote, take care of you stuff happening at Sanctum? I think the fact that they got a lot of their hostesses and performers from Seeking Arrangement, you know, sort of encouraged that exchange. But I think there was just always this given that you could walk up to most women there and say, hey, are you interested in an arrangement? In other words, yes. Damon never walked up and said, hey, you know, do you want that girl? She costs this. And he made it feel classy. You never felt like you were purchasing sex, but you knew it was there. At one point, he had this other level of membership called, like, Dominus. And I think you spent $50,000 to join. And I think it was kind of a given that, you know, you'd go to the party and Damon would have a girl for you. And I'm not sure that Damon would want to talk about this. I'm, you know, he may feel that it cheapens it. I don't. I'm pro-sex work, so I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about. So I asked Damon about this, and actually, he didn't shy away from talking about it. This gets into the realm of sex work, morality, what's okay and what's not okay, what's consensual and not consensual. I have very clear boundaries for myself of what that is. You know, I have absolutely no judgment against anyone that wants to participate in that. At Sanctum, like, the performers were definitely open to doing all kinds of things, and they would have their own personal exchanges and their own personal interactions with people, and I left that up to them, to their own judgment. I didn't get girls from seeking arrangements and say, you're going to have sex in my club for money. That would have brought my club down to, to the ground really quickly. Although sometimes, Damon can get touchy about what this might imply. 
you know, there, there's bullshit stories in the press about, oh, you know, most of the women there were paid. That is so fucking false. Most of the women there were not paid. Most of the women there were there because they wanted to be there and they had nothing to do with money, quite honestly. I absolutely did hire performers to have sex with each other because we did sex shows, but they were like porn performers. And so for girls who did make extra money, who did, you know, whatever, sleep with a member and get money from them, like that was on them. So these girls were not hired to fuck anybody. So yes, girls did get work on the side. But Damon's basically saying that was not part of their job and I wasn't directly involved in it. However, as we'll see after the break, Sanctum wasn't completely hands-off in this department. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hannah Storm and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, by now you know Ambrose. In his three years working at the club, he recalls making a ton of money on the side. Like, sometimes he'd meet rich guys at Sanctum, who he'd then go on to see as escorting clients outside the club. However, he says there was also a system in place at Sanctum for facilitating this stuff in-house. It feels a little weird to keep saying this, but just for clarity, Ambrose is a trans man, but was still presenting as femme back when he was working at Sanctum. Anyway, here's how he says all this stuff went down. Like, around 2 a.m., sometimes 1 a.m., if we got the approval prior... 
we could like get paid out from working the performance or we could try to circulate the crowd and try to find someone who wants to like rent a room with you essentially and whatever occurs in there is between two consensual adults but there's no promise of sexual intercourse or anything sexual happening however before that Damon would always encourage us to like help them finish essentially but then there was a person that was put in a more managerial position that would handle the transactions of those things. And according to Ambrose, this system was working for him. Sometimes if I hustled hard enough, I could get booked multiple times in a night before I went home as a devotee so I could come away with like several thousand dollars from that night, which I sometimes did. We could do it as doubles also, like do a sessions with other performers if we wanted to, and which I prefer doing because less work. Also, if like one of you is like sitting on their face, like looking at their body kind of thing, and the other one's like riding them, facing towards them, the person that you're on top of can't see shit. And then you guys can just make <laughs> like faces at each other like... It's so exhausting. I can't wait for this to be over. Like, fake vomiting. Like, gag me. Or, like, signaling, like, you want to go to the bathroom together? Have a little break. (laughs) Rest our coochies. (laughs) LOL. Threesomes. Less work and more fun. So girls would get, like, a grand for that. And it wasn't until a little bit later on that I found out (laughs) the people booking that hour, they were paying the club 2K. We were only getting half of that and doing all the freaking work. That's Ambrose's experience anyway. And that specific part, he wasn't happy with. But he was still making enough money to make it feel worth it. According to him, at a certain point at Sanctum, it evolved past members paying to book a room for an hour or so to paying to stay overnight at the mansion with a performer. Unsurprisingly, there were never any contracts written up by Sanctum around the operation of this stuff. Everything was conducted verbally, so we are taking people's accounts at face value. I was one of the first people that got it going with, like, we should do overnights. And, like, I convinced this guy. He was, like, 21, 22. He's, like, the son of a musician. I forget who. Um, But he had daddy's black card. (laughs) On file there. How much did you get paid for an overnight? So I went back into, like, the kitchen area, green room area, and was, like, talking to Damon and someone else. And, like, I was like, I think I got him convinced to want an overnight. And they're like, we've never done that before. Like, how much should we charge? Should we charge, like, 300 I was like, no. I was like, you could charge, like, 5 6K for this right here, right now. And I was like, don't bullshit me. I know I'm making half of what you charge them. So what did they charge? They went with 5000 so you get 2500 Yeah, it was one of my best nights. <laughs> Given Ambrose's telling of this, we felt like we had to go back and ask Damon about this again. Remember, Ambrose is a stage name, not his real name. Hence the bleep you hear. The one thing that we did have to ask you about is that you said, I definitely let these girls make money on the side and at a certain time we stopped letting them do that, but I wasn't involved. But is saying that sometimes members could like rent a room at the club and the performer or devotee whatever would have sex with them and then Sangdon would take a cut of that money. There's definitely some truth in that. You know, I, I was definitely walking a, a 
a line that, <laughs> you know, it's a scary thing to talk about, but I, I feel like I, I've been devastatingly honest with everything and I want to continue to be. The way I set those things up or the way that I made that okay for myself was, you know, maybe a member would get a private room and then I would ask girls if they want to, you know, join the person in the room and they would get a cut of the room fee or whatever it was. But I also said like, you know, don't do anything that you don't want to do. It's totally up to you. Don't ever have sex with anyone unless you feel comfortable. They're not paying to fuck you. They're paying for the room. They're paying for some time with you for whatever the experience might be. I set it up in a way where I felt like it was up to them to consent or not consent. Right. So we've talked about this before. This intentionally gray area language is a loophole of sex work, very often employed by the sex workers themselves. Like a client is booking the worker for, quote, their time, not for sex. And then within that time, you can do whatever you want. So this is how Damon protected the club and himself and the performers from the legal implications of these exchanges. Remember, this is the same language that Damon used with the performers during the Dominus ceremonies. If you recall from a couple episodes ago, that's when certain members would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for special Dominus memberships, which included a blood oath initiation ritual that resulted in the new member having a threesome, obviously. Well, participation in those was always completely voluntary for everyone. Damon never told anyone, you have to have a threesome. But at the end of the day, the billionaire got the blood orgy he wanted. We had dominus ceremonies and the girls were paid to do those dominus ceremonies. And some of those ceremonies were with some of the biggest rock stars in the world. And it was like five, six, seven girls all wanting to do that dominus ceremony. And like, I, you know, how do I choose which one gets to do it? It was like they were so fucking excited to fuck that rock star. You know, it was the opposite of me going, oh, God, who am I going to get to do this? The people that were working for me, like they kept coming back. They kept coming to me. Can I work the next party? Is there anyone that's going to come in that maybe you can help me arrange something? Or, you know, they kept coming back to me to facilitate what I assumed they wanted. And notably, Damon actually had some help finessing all of this. And that was able to happen, actually, all that, because they had an L.A. sheriff in their pocket. He would go to the parties. So I actually met him and knew him a bit. But Damon pulled me aside once and was like, that's a sheriff. We're good, basically. He was like, nothing's going to happen to us for doing this, which was essentially escorting. I had people that were members of my club, like a sheriff. I had people in there that, you know, that were telling me, like, you can do this and you can't do this. If you go in this direction, you could get in trouble. So don't do that. And I listened to them because I wanted to keep this thing alive as long as I could. It's always helpful to have a professional on your side. It also reminds me of why wealthy people will always be able to pay for things they want and get what they want. If the clientele was poorer, I'd say that they'd get raided. I'd say if they have incredibly high roller clients, they're probably a little protected. That's Elle Stanger, the sex educator again, telling it like it is. So it sounds like at Sanctum, everybody was getting what they wanted, right? Well, there's also some potential dangers to this undefined space. Like all of these terms, take care of you, arrangement, etc. they don't really mean anything specifically. 
So they leave a lot of room for misinterpretation. And because it's so broad and gray area, there's a lot of, I think, potential opportunity for conflict where a client thinks that because they spent X amount of dollars, they can do whatever they want to you, which is not how that works. I can see so many instances and opportunities where dudes are like, I spent 10K or 20K. What do you mean I can't lick your pussy? You know, like, I'm sure it's happened. <laughs> like, I've heard people complain for a lot less again. Exactly. When you're paying a fuck ton of money, you usually want what you paid for, or at least what you think you paid for. So these members who pay tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to be at Sanctum, what exactly did they think they were purchasing? And what did that mean for the performers who worked there? For example, Ambrose clearly had some great and lucrative times at the club, but he also has some unsettling memories. Was there parts you enjoyed, parts you didn't enjoy? Basically, like, did you like it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes I hated it. Sometimes I've, I got sexually assaulted, quite frankly. Or sometimes I had to, like, stop or, like, deflect someone from doing something. I got really good at, like, if someone was trying to put their fingers in, like, my vagina or ass, I could move my foot to, like, get them to stop doing that <laughs> in kind of a way that wasn't, like, so off-putting to someone who's trying to do something unconsensually to you. And then there were moments when, you know, I had to, like, be like, oh, I'll be right back. <laughs> and then I'd, like, leave the room and I'd, like, tell the security guard. I'm like, nope, mm, not good. Not a good time. I'm done. You got to get him out of here. And then I'd go to the green room and they'd have the guy leave. They didn't blacklist people enough, though. As someone who's worked in the sex industry for years, Elle also has a lot of experience with this type of thing. Basically, some idiot feeling entitled to your body just because you're a sex worker. And then you have to negotiate consent with this drunk person in an environment where you're a performer whose job it is to make sure everyone's having a blast. So you have to keep it, quote, sexy while telling someone not to finger you against your will. As an entertainer, it is so stressful trying to keep the illusion of a good time, you know, sexiness, relaxed, or party, or whatever, and try to manage someone who, like, won't stop touching you, even though they never asked, or they never paid, or both, um, or someone that's done something malicious, like, put a finger inside of you when, again, they didn't ask. It can be really, really scary, and also, like, when I get nervous about going to shift, I don't get nervous because I know that I'm going to be naked. I don't get nervous because I know that I'm going to have to do difficult pull tricks or try to walk in heels. I get nervous because I don't know how people are going to treat me and what I'm going to have to emotionally or maybe physically navigate. Basically, the burden of guests' shitty behavior lands on the performer. Of course, this stuff happens out in the regular world, too, not just at Illuminati orgies. Many of us have been in a situation where some creep pinches your ass and you find yourself wriggling away from them while fake laughing at their bad joke as to not, quote, make it awkward. I know plenty of women who have experienced the swift anger of a rejected man who yells, I didn't want to fuck you anyway, ugly bitch, after simply saying you weren't interested. And that's without money being involved. And these interactions can be heightened in an environment like Sanctum, where the entitlement can be even more rampant. Over the years, Damon's ex-wife Melissa saw a lot of these blurred lines, and it raised some serious red flags for her. There was a lot of gray area, you know? And some girls are different than others. Some are like, yeah, you know, 
throw another 200 bucks my way and like you can do this that or the whatever to me and then some girls were like hell no and then those lines would get crossed and boundaries would get crossed so that's where it got scary people start to come into your world and if you're the owner of this club you're gonna have some issues with some girls and that happened for sure what do you mean girls coming to us and being like this guy touched me and he shouldn't have touched me and this guy asked me to go to the bathroom with him and do sexual favors with him and so we would have to manage that person kick them out of the club if they were like a big high spender and with bottle service and like a whole thing that becomes difficult it was just a lot to manage and all of those little layers behind the scenes it, it was a lot. It was scary. There's a lot of times when Damon would come home and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's killing me. I can't do it anymore. And then he would do the next one and do the next one and keep moving forward. And he just kept doing it and building it. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how do we solve the problems of consent within these undefined sex work situations? Well, a lot of people would argue that that's asking the wrong question. Maybe a better question is, 
Is it even possible to properly negotiate consent in a world where sex work is illegal, where people can't even consent to what they want to do with their own bodies as according to the law? Look, sex work is happening everywhere, whether it's at a sex party or OnlyFans or a porn set or the office of your favorite member of Congress or anywhere else that humans frequent. And many sex work advocates insist that the best way to keep workers paid and safe is to decriminalize sex work. So I would say in a decriminalized world, it would be a lot safer for the workers because in this gray area of negotiation and legality, if something bad happens to the workers, again, they are not going to be in a position to report it to police. In 2021, over 250 scientists, researchers, academics um, who are advocates for harm reduction wrote a formal letter to President Biden and VP Harris formally recommending the full decriminalization of sex work. They're not alone in this. Organizations like World Health Organization, Amnesty International, uh, UN AIDS have been stating for years globally and for decades why full decriminalization is the best way to prevent um, extortion, to prevent trafficking, to make it easier to address victimization. Any sex worker who gets robbed or raped or assaulted is not going to go to the police if what they're doing is illegal. And decriminalization also allows trafficking victims to go to the police without fear of being criminalized themselves. In fact, the term sex work was created by activist Carol Lee as an alternative to prostitution to put the idea of decriminalized sex work into the lexicon of a labor movement rather than a moral or sex-based movement. Now, decriminalization is different from legalization. As Elle explains, legalization gives power to the government, whereas decriminalization gives power to the worker. Legalization is not the answer. So just one example as to why no legalization. Think about people who want to work sex, but under a legalized system, there's going to be things like government-required forms or documents. If you're someone who doesn't have a fixed address or you're a domestic violence survivor or you're a trans person without updated documents, you may not be able to meet the requirements in order to be a legalized worker. So if they work sex, they'd still be arrestable, which again, targets most marginalized populations. Basically, we don't need the government involved in our sex lives. Thanks. But no one's trying to get arrested for the consensual work that they do. And Damon agrees with all this. It offers protections to these girls that are so important. Sex work is an interesting thing. It's obviously it's consensual. Two people, adults are deciding that they want to do this. They have a consensual agreement with each other, but that's still illegal. You're not allowed to pay someone to have sex with you. Because I assume that you want it to be legal because you want to protect these people, right? But you're not doing that. You know, you're doing the opposite. When you look at it that way, decriminalization makes total sense. Whether or not this will actually happen in this country, well, it's not looking great, at least for now. So all of these dilemmas with negotiations and consent and safety, they started to get too much for Damon. Walking this line, it was messy and dangerous. So he decided to bring in some help. For a while, I did not shun that. I allowed that, for sure. But at some point... I got a more professional manager in, management of a high-end hotel. So his approach to things was so different. And I think just right away, he just stepped in and was like, there's a lot of stuff here that, that you can't be doing, you know? And he changed some of the rules and we were like, okay, you know what? 
these girls making this money is dangerous and we have to put an end to it. So that line started to get, to me, very uncomfortable. And that would have ended my whole journey and I probably could have gone to jail. And I'm like, well, you know what? You take over because I don't want to do this anymore. So it started to shift. Okay, cool. Solving the issue by just stopping it altogether. Sounds easy enough, right? But the one new issue this created was that the side hustle sex work was how Ambrose and some of the other performers were actually making the majority of their money. They did get to a point while I was working there where they hired the operations manager. Our pay got cut so hard. They kind of stopped being so out in the open or up front, even with me, about doing the devotee work. Like, to my knowledge, it was done. It wasn't that their fee went down. It was that, I mean, I always paid them like four or 500 bucks, but they were no longer able to hustle that extra money. And at some point, certain people left because of that. They made a decision that if I can't hustle that extra couple thousand dollars in a night, then, you know, whatever, I'll go work at a strip club or I'll go do something else. This decision actually indicated a larger shift at the club, one of moving away from the more free-for-all, almost willfully messy nature of things to something generally more cautious, more regulated. And it's not a coincidence that this happened right around the start of the Me Too movement, toward the end of 2017. The girls that worked for me, in a sense, I feel like I was in the same kind of strange gray area where, you know, I had people paying me a lot of money to facilitate these things that I didn't always feel comfortable with. You know, I didn't always feel like it was the right thing to do, but I did it. For many of us, Me Too encouraged us to think about consent and power dynamics in a more nuanced way. And it made a lot of us look back and think, eek, I should have done that differently. Damon included. I had that realization, and it's a very strong one, that people will consent to things because they're desperate. There's a bunch of money being dangled. And so, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. And when you're dealing with powerful people and celebrities and all of that, and and you just want to be close to them, and you just want to kind of like touch on that magic for a night you might get yourself into a situation where really the next day you're just left alone. They're not going to call you the next day. And at that time, I allowed that concept of consent to make me feel like I was walking a moral path. I'm not everyone's dad. It's not my role to decide if someone's consent is enough. But today, you know, in my life now, I wouldn't allow some of the stuff that I allowed. I I just wouldn't because, yeah, because consent isn't enough. Eventually, Damon got to the point where his dream was becoming more of a nightmare. There were all the pressures of running the club, obviously. And then there was the havoc the club was wreaking on his personal life, on his family, and on his own relationship with sex. He was rethinking what exactly he wanted for his future and whether Sanctum should be a part of it at all. Next, on Sanctum Unmasked. The crazier I got, the more everyone in the mental institution was just like, you know, cheering me on. Like, we're all in this asylum together. He's pulled towards certain universal truths, and then he, like, goes too far into the volcano It just got bad. I mean, you fuck with people's kids, and it's like war. 
Sanctum Unmasked is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. Hosted and written by me, Carly Shortino. Edelise Perez is our lead producer and story editor. Amelia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by George Hicks. Original music composed by Jesse Neiswanger. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Local illustration by Linda McNeil. Graham Gibson is our recording engineer. Recorded at iHeart Studios in Los Angeles, California. Executive producers are Nick Stumpf, Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and me, Carly Shortino. If you're enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. You can keep up with Damon on Instagram. He's at Father Damon. Tune in next week. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.